Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Everything is Black and White podcast. This is another episode of Gibbo's Corner brought to you in association with eToro. I'm Andrew Musgrove and on this episode of Gibbs Corner we're going to talk about the nearly men of Newcastle United and the players who nearly signed to the managers who nearly took over. There's going to be some names that you may have heard before and some names which you may be surprised at. Obviously Gibbs has been through it all more than 50 years working for the Chronicle and Journal so he's the man to tell us the stories that some of us may never have heard. So here we go, John Gibson talking about the nearly men of Newcastle United. Hello, John. Welcome Hi. to uh, Chronicle Towers. Mm. You've got plenty of notes there because yes, I have. We need a memory joggers on these <laughs> things. We're going to talk uh, about quite a few players who may have joined Newcastle. Who are on the cusp. This isn't just you know rumours. This is no. Actually, this is something actually happening. Yeah, sit down talks, nearly contracts signed. So all very exciting. We'll start. We'll jump straight in with one of the world's best ever players in George Weir. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this was at the height of the entertainers, and this was a wonderful period, as you know, for Newcastle United in terms of signing everybody and anybody. I mean, at this particular time with George Weir, Newcastle had already signed Rob Lee, Andy Cole, Beardsley, Darren Peacock, Philip Albay, they were already here to come after the, the attempt to get Weir was uh, Warren Barton, Ferdinand, Ginola, Spree Shearer. So we know the sort of people Newcastle went for. It's slightly different to the situation we're currently in. I mean, it ended up with a world record being paid for Shearer. And um, in May 95, Newcastle United, which was John Hall, Douglas Hall, Freddie Shepard, and Freddie Fletcher, who is the chief executive, um, they actually agreed a fee with Paris Saint-Germain by fax at £4.2 million for George Weir, who at that stage wasn't greatly known by the rank and file over here, but he was to become literally one of the greatest players the world's ever seen, was voted World Footballer of the Year, is um, now the... Uh, President of Libya, for goodness sake, how many football people have uh, taken over a country? He literally has. Um, I always remember talk, I was on the inside of things in those days, very much so because I haven't been a member of the Magpie group that helped get the halls into power. Um, I was party to what was happening, um, some of it which got in the papers naturally, others they didn't because it could have killed deals. It was agreed by fax with Paris Gentleman 4.2 for George Weir. Um, I remember Douglas Hall telling me, he said, we're waiting for the details of the payments, how they're going to be made, etc, um, etc. Et and literally the I's and the T's with George Weir in terms of his contract. When all of a sudden a message came from the agent um, that he was going to be sold to AC Milan buying Newcastle's backs. It would appear that that 
the agent and the club had used Newcastle to up the price. Milan had bid three million, he went for five million. Newcastle had agreed four point two in the in in the middle of it all. Um but I mean the arrangements were quite staggering and were quite detailed to show that they had got him. I mean uh, Freddie Shepherd and Douglas Hall were going to America were due to fly to America. At that stage, there was the Newcastle Sporting Club, which you, you might remember, that was widened up from just Newcastle United. They were dealing in ice hockey, they'd bought the basketball club, they'd bought the rugby club, and they were going over to America to talk to three ice hockey clubs over there about linking into the Newcastle Sporting Club. They got a call from KK saying, look, we've got to go over to Paris to clinch a deal for George Weir and to meet George, etc., etc." you've got to come with us I need backing from the top. America was immediately cancelled, the flights were cancelled, tickets were bought to go over to get Weir. Uh, when they got the message, so he'd gone to Milan. Uh, the ironic thing with that is that Douglas Hall then put, put America back on to go over there, now we're not going to get Weir. Um, they couldn't book all the way through to America. They had to pick up their bags at Heathrow. They picked up their bags at Heathrow. Douglas Hall had flown, flown all over the world with Newcastle and with his own life. They were in the Concord Lounge waiting to catch the plane over to America. And he got so convinced that the plane was going to crash and that they were going to die that he actually phoned, he told me afterwards, he actually phoned his solicitor to pass on a message to his wife if something happens, dum dum dum. They got on Concord and went to the end of the runway, and and the takeoff was aborted. It came back round again. They were told to get off, and they would fly out in an hour's time. Him and Freddie got off, absolutely decimated. Said, "Hey, to hell with that." They went to uh, King's Cross, got on a train, come back to Newcastle, and so both was off. Um, I talked to Terry McDermott about the George Weir thing and he said Gibbo we were duped we were used we believed that we actually had got him and ironically Terry and Newcastle talked to George Weir later if you remember he came eventually I mean his great years were with Milan where he went um, but he came eventually to play in the Premier League um, and he told McDermott I would have been delighted to come to Newcastle. Yeah, um, got some quotes apparently that uh, we uh, said I would not have sat in the papers in Milan had I known Newcastle United were interested. Absolutely right, absolutely right. Which just verified how much you know the deal was on. Of course, what we've got to remember is not only did Paris Saint Germain want the price hiked up and they got it hiked up through Milan, but of course the agents' fee similarly hikes up, and so you had the the dreaded hand of the agent playing a part in this but I mean Weir was not well known he was unlucky he was a bit like George Best with Northern Ireland he was with Libya they never made uh, the World Cup finals so he never had this monumental stage to be on but he become world footballer of the year I always remember him you know when we had um, Channel 5 was it that had uh, Gaza Italia originally and they did all the live matches and I was a big fan of the live matches and I always remember AC Milan, we are playing for AC Milan when you've got to remember that I was thinking this fellow could easily be Newcastle, not reported at the, at the time. They're playing at the San Siro against Verona and 
Milan defend the corner, he picked up the ball in his own penalty area, he ran into the opposing penalty area past seven players, slalom type, and stuck the ball in the back of the net. One the most sensational individual goal as a team post a team goal I've ever seen. That's how good George Weir was, and he was due to come to Newcastle. The consolation, I might add, that we all have is that the, the striker they got when they couldn't get him was Les Ferdinand and I don't think any Newcastle United fan would be too upset at the thought of, of Les coming as a replacement instead of Weir. Newcastle was so exasperated by the way they'd been trapped by Paris Saint-Germain that they were going to take them to UEFA and they'd already started that process um, of being duped by Paris Saint-Germain. But lo and behold, all of a sudden, another of the entertainers arrives in Newcastle from Paris Saint-Germain, David Ginola, and in doing that deal, they agreed to pull the plug on anything happening with UEFA about George Weir. So, out of a killer of not getting Weir, we got Ferdinand and we got Ginola. I suppose it shows just how... Big Newcastle United's reputation was back then. Oh. You, you talk today about Newcastle signing oh. players from AC Milan or Paris. Uh, yes, man. It, it, it's one of those where you, you think would not. It's a dream under under this. It's a nonsense, regime. you would think, isn't it? But back then, I mean, yeah. And this is not that long ago. In in the nineties, Hall. I mean, Hall was the owner before the last one. Paul was the owner that sold out to Ashley, so it, it, it's it's that recent, the owner before the one we've got now. Now we're buying £5 million centre forwards, Jocelyn, with all respect to him, uh, £5 million. Here we're talking about George Weir, who World Footballer of the Year. The next one I'm going to talk about, Roberto Baggio, World Footballer of the Year, and we've got Alan Shearer, World Record Transfer Fee, £15 million England skipper. That was commonplace for Newcastle in those days and as I say they don't get Weir so they get Ferdinand and and uh, they get Ginola they don't get Roberto uh, they don't get Roberto Baggio they get Espria from Italy I mean it was like that then that seems a million miles away now but uh, and funny enough the Roberto Baggio one and who was just in the July of 95 um, Newcastle by now were, were so extraordinary the way they were going about the transfer business and the board enjoyed it. The Halls and Freddie Fletcher and Freddie Shepherd they got a huge kick out of going and producing deals that nobody thought were possible. They got a, a massive, massive kick out of that. They were pushing it all the time. That's how they got Shearer at a world record fee. And that's why they went for Roberto Baggio. Who is it impossible to get? Well, perhaps it isn't impossible to get. You don't know till you're trying. Um, the, the story is that I think Douglas Hall rang up. Uh, was it Juventus and said, Look, "How much is it going to cost me to to, to get by you?" And they said, "There's no one to speak to, and he's, he's not for sale." And then Hall but, jumped on a plane and went. Well, that's, yeah, that's, that's it was Freddie Shep that made the call. But yes, it was uh, Hall and Shepard worked in tandem most of the time, um, and. I remember Douglas saying the time he was smashing the, the club record transfer fee. They smashed it twice in a matter of days for Warren Barton and Les Ferdinand. So they wanted to go again. Um, 
And Douglas Hall was that keen on it being Badjo. He actually had a Newcastle United shirt made up with Badjo's name on the back and, and had a, in the back of his car, strategically placed over the back seat of the car so it could be seen through the window and everybody didn't know whose car it was, didn't know what that shirt was, etc, etc. But Freddie Shep, Sent a, he sent a fax to Juventus and got the reply that there's absolutely no Roberto Baggio. I mean, in Italy, world, world-renowned superstar like Beckham and, and, and people of, of that ilk. And the, the, there was interest in the fax come back from Juventus in absolutely no chance of getting this fella. We are a club that builds empires, not loses them. That was the thing. And Freddie Shedd, uh, actually framed that fax and had it in his house for the rest of his life framed the, the, from Juventus they decided him and Douglas Hall anyway that um, ah, we're not going to accept this you know it's okay on a fax for people off but if we go and knock at somebody's door then we're for real and they might take you for real um, so they got on a plane flew out to Italy to knock and it was pretty shit Freddie Fletcher, Terry McDermott, um, and they took a guy I knew well called Franco, who was a local restaurateur in Newcastle. They'd had a, a, a restaurant just down from Corner Kick away from St James's Park, which is all the players went to, etc. And he was a huge Newcastle United fan, well trusted by the club and by the players. And they were going to use him as the interpreter. Uh, for them out there of course so he was part of it KK was away on holiday and couldn't make the trip so it was Terry McDermott uh, they were due to meet the number one agent in Italy in Turin um, he didn't turn up they were annoyed uh, the, the contingent flew back to Newcastle apart from Douglas who stayed on to go to Marbella which is where the family were on holiday um, all of a sudden he got a call saying, boom, terribly sorry, didn't turn up, please come, please meet us, etc, etc. The deal was that um, Juve wanted 8.5 million and Baggio £64,000 a week. And this was in 95. So, you know, you, you can treble those numbers up by today's standard. That didn't at all scare off Newcastle United. Um, they went to Milan, due to meet him, uh, due to meet the agent again, and they found this great difficulty when dealing with um, foreign clubs. They openly would play off one club against the other without letting you know that was happening. And again, amazingly, it was Milan who were lurking in the background to get Baggio. I mean, he was world player of the year. The Divine Ponytail was his nickname um, because of the, the famous ponytail. Uh, 1990 World Cup, they finished third Italy, 1994 World Cup, they made the final, I was there, it was in America, Baggio amazingly missed a penalty in the shootout against Brazil, it was the reason why Italy didn't win the World Cup. But again, they were so, so close. These deals would have rocked the world if they got we if they got Baggio and made a massive, massive statement. But again, out of that, they went back to Italy later and got a spree out of Palmer, who was quite sensational. And then the deal did rock the world because it was a world record fee with Shearer. So Newcastle in those days, this was nothing out the norm. And while, you know, 
in the past and now, if there's anything linking Newcastle with a big name centre forward these days, and he's 20 million or 25 million, and that's not the greatest price in the world, but immediately the fans say, oh, come on, we'll spend 5 million or we'll get somebody on loan. That's the market of today. This was happening and happened regularly, as we say, from everybody, from Ferdinand Ginola. What a signing Ginola was. Asprey, Shearer, Weir, Roberto Baggio. So, Wonderful times. I mean, that was a clear sign of ambition by Douglas Hall, by Freddie Shepard, by Sir John Hall. Absolutely. They wanted to go out and win the Premier League. They wanted to turn Newcastle into one of the best teams in Europe. And by the way, Newcastle United finished runners-up in the Premier League two successive seasons. So having started when they went into power on the verge of going into the third division, one match away from it at Leicester, if you remember, when, when they won one match away from the old third division, to Premier League runners-up two successive seasons, and we've been whirling through the sort of people that Newcastle United bought. I mean, that is why the contrast with now is so stark and that is why Kevin Keegan's book is is the way it is because he was used to operating within the the whole regime and he was he was dissatisfied at times he was a restless little soul and he was dissatisfied at times when he was working within the whole regime so you can imagine what he was like when he frequently worked within the Ashley regime and that is why the the book and the bitterness and the badly, the bad way he was treated is is exploded now because he was used to these days. Do you think had Newcastle got Weir, had Newcastle got Badjo, do you think they would have gone after Shearer? That's a great question. Um, I think they would. Uh, whether they would have gone after Ferdinand would have been the one because they played two strikers up front in those days. Baggio was essentially attacking midfielder, although he could play. Uh, but he, he got most of his goals from attacking midfield and we and Shearer may, might have been a heck of a partnership I think the one they might not have gone for and I, by the way I was more than happy to see is Les Ferdinand because in his two seasons here he was absolutely wonderful but if they got Weir they would have well thought we don't need Ferdinand but of course Shearer was another dimension yet again a Geordie England skipper uh, world record transfer fee, nicking him from under the nose of, of Ferguson. Uh, I think it would have been less that wouldn't have come. You mentioned there briefly Tino Aspria who came in after Baggio didn't. Mm. Many people, wrongly in my opinion, uh, point the blame at him for Newcastle's demise. Yeah. The 12 points clear yep. the title. Do you share that? You? No, I, I know how it happened because in, in the same way, I mean, Manchester City were going to were going to win the title and they went and bought Rodney Marsh right at the end. Another who flicked the ball up his trouser leg and brought it out at the top of his shirt, etc., etc. And it, it didn't work and so it was all down to Rodney Marsh that he didn't win the title. And Malcolm Allison, they did it. Um, I think that's unfair on... Aspria, I think Newcastle were on the slippery slope. He was a wonderful, wonderful talent. Again, I had been watching him regularly playing for Palmer on a Sunday afternoon on live on the telly games. And he played up front with Gianfranco Zola and the partnership was absolutely phenomenal. Um, the wildest man I've ever known, um, without a shadow of doubt, off the park. Absolutely crazy and couldn't be controlled in any way whatsoever. Um, 
So there was that side to him. Wild, totally likeable, as a lot of wild guys can be. And I think it was harsh to say that. And um, I prefer to remember Barcelona 3-2. Uh, and I'm a great lover of talent. And, and when I see players that can play the deuce things like Aspria did that night, I am so captivated by it, I can almost forgive anything. It's when I watch players that can't do things and just toil, toil, toil. Toil, bless them, because they're giving me the blood, sweat and tears, but unfortunately the tears are mine and the blood and sweat's theirs. Um, that's when I get frustrated, not by talent. Uh, wasted talent, and yes, it could be argued with, with George Best, it could be argued with Paul Gascoigne. The, the talent was so phenomenal, in the end, it was wasted. Um, but I prefer the fond memories of Aspria rather than blaming him for not winning. Though I do wonder if we'd won it the first time, Andrew. Not so much the second time when we finished runners-up because we were behind. But the first time was all set. I think Keegan wouldn't have left and I think the doors would have... And I don't think the halls would have left and the doors would have been open for a whole different future to the one we've got now. If only, I mean, one thing yeah. I do want to ask, I mean, it must have been exciting as not just a reporter, but as a fan to to get you know the names that were getting plucked out of the air and, and to see that Newcastle oh. weren't, weren't arrogant about convincing these players to come to Newcastle. No. They were just confident in their ability to sell the totally. club. Sell I mean, the I've got to pinch myself that I lived through that period. And... Um, and I'm so relieved it happened that way because I'd been heavily involved because of the push to get the current board out and the new regime in with John Hall. And as I've said many times, when we succeeded after two years, they suddenly I was in a cold sweat lying in bed because I thought it's all right to succeed. But what if this goes belly up? What if this doesn't work? What if this regime is a disaster? And I know at the end it tapered away badly um, when we got uh, Michael Owen and things start going downhill. But by then, John Hall's hand was off the tiller. He'd stepped back to allow Douglas to carry on and to allow Freddie to carry on. And he was very much a man in the past. And I think the dynamic Newcastle was with Sir John Hall in charge and Keegan in charge. Yes, people like Freddie Fletcher behind the scene, Douglas, Freddie Shep contributed enormously but the partnership that was taking us to the moon to land men on the moon was John Hall and Kevin Keegan and it was a privilege not only to be around and see all these come in Andrew but to be on the inside and trusted enough by the club to hear all these deals to hear about we and Baggio as it was happening didn't happen didn't come into print immediately because it wouldn't have helped um, but of course eventually you are able to write about it um, those days are a treasure and it's for them to end with um, I mean Ferdinand Shearer Ginola on the wing I mean it, it's ridiculous it's frightening we we were a better side to watch than Manchester United with Ferguson because they were more orthodox, they ground out things and they had a, the flair of Cantnor or whatever up front. But this was, was literally the entertaining side. And I mean, we were loaded right across the country. And every neutral wanted us to win things. And everybody wanted to come to Newcastle United press conferences. The whole of Fleet Street from London just decamped 
to Newcastle because this is where it was all happening. Um, you know, whatever Man City are today, etc., etc. Newcastle were that handsome um, in those days, and it and a lot of it came off if it was all badger and weir and they didn't quite come. You would feel a bit of frustration. But when you say, okay, you didn't get one, but you got Les Ferdinand, we didn't get another, but we got a spear, and then, whoa, we topped it off with Shearer. It did happen at Newcastle United at that time. Deals were concluded. Wonderful time, and makes, right now, the misery it is when you, when you think within your lifetime, you think of the signings that we were doing then, and the signings that we're doing now, where we're grateful to get somebody in on loan. All the more reason to, to tell them in episodes like we are doing. Um, yeah. So go back a few years. We've yes. talked about two players who were making the name on the continent. Mm-hmm. But here in England, one man who, let's say, hasn't got the best reputation with Newcastle United fans. <laughs> yeah, but there's no true. denying that he was one of the best midfielders that this country, Scotland, has has, has ever produced that this country's ever had the privilege of, of seeing playing. And that great, is great Sooners. Great Sooners. Because Newcastle fans naturally remember Graham Sooners as the manager because that's what he was here. Uh, as a player, he was absolutely sensational. He was an elegant assassin. He was incredibly handsome, ping the ball about all day, over shelvy distance, short, long, a lot more accuracy, a lot more flair. But if necessary, the club could go in as well. Um, and he was a glorious, glorious player. He made his reputation at Middlesbrough, and and that's where I got to know him. And I got to know him quite well at Middlesbrough. And as you said, I'm attracted like bees to only by talent, um, and like mixing and talking with and being part of people with very special talent. And believe you me, it was obvious he was going to be a very, very good player. He was outgrowing Middlesbrough and um, because we were friends, he gave me a bell and said, look, I'm going to leave Middlesbrough. It's time to spread my wings, etc. He'd been down to Spurs, never made it, just would come up to Middlesbrough and he wanted to spread his wings. He said, he knew the size of this club through being at Middlesbrough and regardless of where they are in the league or the doldrums in, they were a big club, they were 52,000 now, never won anything for all that time but still a club to be reckoned with. And he said, can you get me up here? Now, it wasn't a great time um, at Newcastle United. Richard Janus had just given away to Bill McGarry as manager, that happened in November 1977 and McGarry took over. And Richard Dennis had been the number two to Gordon Lee. He was never cut out to be a manager. Uh, he got the job through player power. It didn't work. We lost 10 games on the trot in the old first division at the beginning of the season. He got the pedal. Bill McGarry had come in to kill off the player power within St James's. It's easy to knock down the wall, it's harder to build it and he couldn't build a team and eventually went himself. But I went up to Newcastle anyway and, and, and let them know, look, I've had word, Graham Souness, top, top player, you must know, Ed Perry, you've seen him, wants to come to Newcastle, you just need, I've got the number, you talk to him, then go through the front door, talk to Middlesbrough, and they, they are resigned to a deal's going to be done, and, and it could be done. Newcastle dithered on what to do about it, and while they were dithering, in the January of, of 78, Liverpool come in, and um, 
concluded the deal. And now you can imagine my anguish at, at, at seeing that happen. I hadn't written anything about Sunes at that stage because it would have killed any possibility of a deal and it would have alerted other clubs. Liverpool come in. Now, as we know, Sunes went on, he won five league championships, three European Cups, four league Cups at Liverpool. And years later, I went down there to... Um, stay for four or five days with Bob Paisley and do stories about the little Jody fellow from Head in the Hole that was manager of this greatest club. And I bumped into Graham and I said, hey, I said, I bet you're well sick, like, you know, you could have been playing for us and you got unlucky and you come here to Liverpool, like, and he roared with, with laughter because he won everything at Liverpool. If you come to Newcastle, well, we know what's happened at Newcastle, they won nothing in that time. He's got five league championships, three European Cups. Um, but he, he was a, a good, good guy as a player and an outstanding player. As a manager, a totally different ball game. I... I knew him well but I didn't fancy him at all as a manager and when you look at Newcastle United you know you think can they do everything wrong because we have had world-class players Ozzy Ordelis, Kenny Dalglish, Wood Hullet, Sunes, world-class players the only trouble is none of them played for us all of them managed us and they were very average managers at best so we, we got them completely the, the wrong way around. And Graeme Soonce's reputation up here will always be negative because as a manager, I'm afraid, not rated by the fans. And I've got to be, I've got to be truthful and say not by me, but as a player, absolutely chop, chop draw and could easily have been here. It took Newcastle too long to make up their minds. It took Liverpool much less of a time and they got a gem. But then again, they came to Newcastle and got Terry McDermott and that, so they, they signed it and signed well. Do you think as soon as had he arrived, Newcastle would have started to build a team and, and maybe oh, success I, would yes, have come? Without a, shadow, without a shadow of doubt, because he would have bossed the midfield. I mean, uh, his strength, he had everything. I mean, he was an assassin in the most elegant player with a silky touch that was possible. And to have both inside one body was quite incredible because normally you, you, you have the cultivated guy here and you have the assassin alongside him and the two go together as a pair. He was it. He was the one. Um, and without a shadow of doubt was one of the top players in Europe or midfield players in Europe if not the world and that's uh, and a lot of Liverpool's success goes from the hub of midfield and, and soon as it was exactly that. Quite a, a staggering player. And of course, living in, in Middlesbrough area, as he did, he would have come up here and not even have to move house, etc., etc. And he knew, because he lived so close, that while Newcastle were in the throes of having had Dennis and McGarry, that they would quickly grow again. Do you, do you think, was there ever a moment when you were so bored afterwards and they've gone, oh, John, what have, what have we done? Was there a sense of regret? Yes, there was, because it, not because they said to me, oh, John, what did we not do? But because I said to them, oh, what the hell did you not do? And, and they held their hands up and said, hey, you couldn't, you couldn't be more right. But they, their excuse was there was so dis, much disarray within the club that they're working out with the manager and with, with the player power that was being killed off 
and the manager had said well, they took the eye off the ball but you can't afford because there's only ever so infrequently the gems come out. and this was a gem that came to them via me and said I want to sign for you it wasn't them trying to have to persuade like Newcastle persuading we and Banjo this was the guy coming to Newcastle and saying will you sign me Oh dear me, no, we'll, uh, we'll let you go to Liverpool and win five titles and three European Cups instead, thank you. Well, what may have been from one loudmouth on the pitch mm. to another quite vocal man off the pitch <laughs> um, in Mr Clough. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, an amazing character. I mean, I know everybody says he's one-off, but by Jove, he, he certainly was. Um, I mean, I got known ever so well. It's quite amazing, you know, in those days, great, great managers would get in their car and travel all over the country to do talkings in social clubs in front of 400 people. I mean, I regularly did talkings with Brian Clough and Bobby Robson throughout the Northeast when, I mean, Cloughy, not just when Cloughy was up in the Northeast, but or, or Bobby, but when Bobby was managing Ipswich and Cloughy was managing Nottingham Forest, they would jump in a car up to the Northeast. I'd have done a deal with a social club to put them on for a night, and they would come up here to talk and then drive through the night back home. Can you imagine these days Pep Guardiola or Klopp or Arsene Wenger before he left or Ferguson before he left? doing that sort of thing. Managers in those days did. And I got to know Cluffy well because I did a lot of gigs with him up here. And um, I'll tell you a couple of stories about him in a moment. But talking about him coming to Newcastle, it became a, a pretty persistent theme with us up here. Um, we, were, we had a group of people who were supporters club people. Um, who involved uh, Malcolm Dix, um, John Wolf, Peter Ratcliffe, uh, myself, etc., etc., um, and became the backbone of the Magpie Group that worked with John Holland to put John Holland to power. And this all started just before John took over at Newcastle. And it, it, I always remember sitting at one of the um, the do's up here and um, talking John Wolf and Peter Ratcliffe were to do with me um, and we were listening to Cluffy, Cluffy and in the interval sitting with Cluffy and talking and, and initially it was um, it was Mr Wolf and Mr Ratcliffe that brought up the situation and would you like to come would you consider coming and joining Newcastle United and You've got to remember that this guy was at Forest and had won European Cups against all the odds at Forest and won the championship and did everything as he did with Frank Clark. But he he was a North East man. He was born up here. He'd played for Middlesbrough. He then played for Sunderland. He then managed Hartlepool. So he knew the area inside out and he knew the passion of the people up here, which is one of the reasons why he kept coming and working up here. And he was really, really interested. And I, I, it went. It had gone further than that when when Stan Seymour Junior was running Newcastle, and Malcolm Dix and a, a few of the lads I've just mentioned went with the idea of approaching Clough uh, and making him Newcastle United manager. 
Arthur Cox was with us at the time. Again, it was one of the doldrum times just before Arthur got a massive lift off at Newcastle by signing Kevin Keegan, the player, and then following that up with Peter Beardsley. Waddle was already here. That was a front three that won us promotion. But at the time, Newcastle were very much in the doldrums of the second division. And in a, with Seymour's blessing, approaches were made for Cluffy. He said he was more than interested, um, and he did on this other occasion when we, we sat and talked about it in the social club up here and talked about it way, way into the night, and in some considerable detail. It was put out, could you, you could be managing director and manager. In fact, you know, you can be anything you like. You can knock Gray's Monument down and put yourself on the top of there if you want, if you come and manage Newcastle Net. And Ego, having that sort of title, but also being the manager, not managing director and having a manager, he would do combine both jobs. He was very, very close to coming here. Um, because whatever we say, you can argue that one of the biggest clubs he ever managed was Leeds United, because Derby and Nottingham Forest were nothing at the time Clough, Derby had been, at the time Clough made them something yet again. So that was the wonderful thing about him. He built up these clubs that weren't naturally 50,000 backed by spectators and made them what they were. So the idea of having Newcastle United, um, he could see the potential in that and it appealed to his ego. Amazingly, in the end, it appealed to him on a, on a football terms completely. And he very, I know because I know the man how seriously he considered it and was very, very keen, as is often the case in these things. It was the wife that didn't want to move, and that was often the case because nowadays, you know. People don't move around, do they? Steve Bruce lives in one house in Birmingham and manages Sunderland, Hull, whoever, and the family stay there. And so that happens with top players now as well. They don't often move to the city. I mean, Benitez's family in Liverpool and, and he manages up here. Uh, but in those days, you went as a caravan. You may as well live in the caravan if you're a player, travelling around every two years to another club. And Bob, who was well established down in the Midlands area, uh, ironically, again, a person that knew the northeast ever so well just didn't want to move her and uh, the family. Uh, having left here, I mean, Nigel was born in Sunderland when when Dad was playing for Sunderland, Nigel Club. Having left here and, and established themselves down there, she just didn't want to uproot the family and come up here for Newcastle. And it's amazing how often you can talk business and you can talk football to people and then somebody that's got nothing to do with the football side of it at all like the lady her indoors as Arthur Daly would say it just doesn't fancy the move and naturally the family's got to play a big part in any decision and it was a rather embarrassed Brian that admitted that Bob didn't fancy it and with the kids etc etc embarrassed because he liked with his ego, he was in charge of everything, but he wasn't in charge of home. <laughs> so it was, but that was the difficulty. Um, but a, an amazing man of contradiction. I mean, I, you know, he's someone I got to know so well, Andrew, and I didn't know him at all. Because, and you would never know him. Because, um, I mean, you saw the wonderful side of him, and then almost the cruel side of him uh, at the same time. I remember, for example, Newcastle going to Jersey 
pre-season when I was travelling with the, the, the club going to Jersey, Jersey for pre-season friendlies and you know bonding and all that sort of thing and I walked in the hotel it was just a couple of weeks before the season opened walked in the hotel after training went for dinner and there's a big table down the bottom end with the Newcastle United on it exclusive for the players and the directors etc etc and I sat at the round table a hundred yards away and all of a sudden I hear this nasal voice in my ear saying oh, what are you doing here I turned around to Cluffy and it's Cluffy sitting with Bob. Now he did this regularly. He went on his summer holidays to somewhere like Jersey during pre-season training and let Peter Taylor take the training while he went on holiday. He was a total contradiction. It's like on the 590, he'd have a pint with the players in it first, in a, you know, before or in the midweek before European game. Only two pints, and he was very clever. He said, well, they'll do it anyway behind my back so we'll do it with me and then I, we'll see them off to bed but and there he was and he was on holiday with Bob and he worked with me all the time so I was like a workmate too and he said why aren't he said why aren't you sitting on the official table I said oh no we don't do that and you got the press don't mix with the player the players and more importantly the directors so he made a huge fuss as Cluffy does of getting a waiter to pick up all my food and everything and take it over to his table and put it on his table and announce in a rather loud voice so that Nick Asnader could hear it that I was to sit at this table every evening and have his, my meals with him etc etc at the meal went in the bar with, with Cluffy Newcastle directors come in the bar and of course it was like a honeypot they all wanted to talk to to Cluffy, so they all come round to talk to Cluffy. Mr. Clough put the hands out to shake hands and he said, Excuse me to the Newcastle director. He said, I'm in personal company with a dear friend and uh, I will speak to you later. Now, John, where were we again? To make a huge point over to the Newcastle United directors. And that produced a lovely warmth. I mean, you, you saw other occasions where he was absolutely frightening. I remember doing a show at um, Gateshead, in the Civic Centre at Gateshead. Packed. It's cluffy. And all the dignitaries were upstairs waiting to welcome him, etc. And they put on, oh, you know, lovely little nibbles and champagne and, and one thing or another. And he walked straight, I heard, you see it, he walked straight in, out of the car, straight in, straight onto the stage, wouldn't go upstairs to meet the dinghies. They're all standing upstairs waiting to greet him in volivants and, and drinks. And went straight on the stage, sat on the stage, signed autographs, refused to come off at half time to go up and see them again upstairs, all the dinghies. Stayed on stage, signed some more autographs. Some little girls, bless them, were in absolute tears who were going to do a, a gymnastic uh, entertainment thing on stage in the interval and Cluffy wouldn't come, wouldn't come off the stage. Um, he'd got changed in the car on the way over into an immaculate silver suit, beautiful silver suit, until I looked down and he had trainers on untied, laces untied and no socks and he had this magnificent suit, shirt and tie, trainers, laces, no socks, had to be different. Halfway through the evening he gets a question about signing Justin Fashion, the centre forward, apart from saying well 
he's an absolute disaster. But what do I know about centre forwards? I haven't been a great goal scoring one himself. But he suddenly switches tack completely and launches an absolute tirade at the audience about this country and them allowing Maggie Thatcher to become Prime Minister because, of course, he was a huge Labour guy. And he launches this massive tirade to which the audience are completely bemused because the question was about fashion and this was a, a Labour stronghold that he's lashing for allowing um, Thatcher to become Prime Minister. But he was a man of total contradiction, um, a genius of a football manager. The wonderful thing is that neither the players nor anyone else knew what he was going to do next. And there was always a fear factor in Cluffy. But you ask for anybody that played from from Frank Clough, Frank Clark to anyone else, Cluffy was a main man. If he had come to Newcastle, by Jove, he would have had to be given his head. You can't imagine Brian Clough managing under Mike Ashley, can you? Can you think of that just for five seconds? I don't think we can. But you can't imagine him managing under a lot of people. And that's, of course, why he didn't get the England job, because the FA wouldn't allow him to manage uh, under them. But quite extraordinary. And you talk about whether, what would have happened if we'd got Weir, if we'd got Baggio, etc. OK, we mentioned who we got instead, which was pretty good. But what might have happened if we got Cluffy? That could have been really, really something. Um, because, by Jove, you would have done it his way. Um, there we go. Do you think he would have been able to handle a club the size of Newcastle? Because they didn't have the success that Leeds had had when he went to Leeds. Obviously, he had a, he had a big shoes to fill there, Don Revy. But yeah, like you see, the size of the club in in terms of I think he, I think he would. I think he would. His ego got. I've got to be truthful. His ego, which was part of him being a genius, but part of his drawback got in his way at times in the Leeds move he wasn't with Peter Taylor and when you look back at his career Peter Taylor was so important Would to he him have he's number two Taylor Taylor, yeah, yeah. He, and he was he was important and he was only three quarters the manager Taylor was the other quarter once they split very harmoniously and from the go to Leeds of all clubs because he he, he I mean, the first thing he did, he, Revy was absolutely adored. I mean, I knew Jack John, who was a Revy man, and the players absolutely adored him. Etc. He walked in, and on the first day, all the huge names, Billy Bremner and all those, got up and said, by the way, you lot can throw all your First Division Championship medals in the river because you got them by treaty. Now, they're going to love you when you start off like that, aren't you? And now, if they get together, because however good a manager you are, you can't cross that white line. They do at three o'clock. And if they want to sell you down the river collectively, they can do that. And especially at Leeds, where they had all the great players that played like drains because because of him. He lasted, what, 42 days or something of that nature? Um, it was the wrong club at any time for him. I'm amazed. It, it's only a man, bless him, because I loved him to death. He's only a man of his ego that would ever take on Leeds and think he, one man, could crack a dressing room of 18 superstars and make them jump to his tune. He couldn't. 
And obviously, you're quite close to Frank Clark. Uh, I think you're doing a doing a, a book with him to celebrate the mm. 50 years since Newcastle last one. Yeah, it's uh, out next month. Yes. Any silver? Well, I mean, obviously, he went on to win titles and uh, uh, well, trophies under under Cluffy. I mean, what did he uh, think of Cluffy? I mean, what what has he told you about being a, being a left back at that time under? Well, I mean, it was staggering. He was so cruel. He was so hurt by getting a free transfer at Newcastle United because he'd been promised a a contract by Joe Harvey. This was the end of the Joe Harvey reign, and the board decided no. If he got a new contract, it had been awarded a testimonial match, which in those days were very big to players because they weren't getting the sort of money they get now. You don't get a testimonial match now unless you're finished with a horrendous injury or whatever, or you give a donation like she right to uh, give it all to charity which Queen started doing at Sunderland um, he was on the verge so he was thrown out here and he thought he was 32 next birthday he thought end of my career I've done well I've done wonderful I've won a European a European trophy with Newcastle etc et but this is the end he was going to go to Doncaster Rovers when he got a call from Cluffy Forrest were in the second division there not the first of us, and he got a call from Cluffy saying, come down here, you're good for you, sign for me, you'll do a job for me. He's nearly 32. And he goes, oh, I'll go and sign for Cluffy, they might be in the second division, but I can help to get them up, etc, etc. He helped to get them up. They then won the first division title, they then won the League Cup, they then won the European Cup. His last game of football, Frank Clark, at the end of a wonderful career, was the European Cup final which he won. That is like phenomenal. That is just an absolute dream. He'd been used to a different sort of manager in Joe Harvey from the rank and file because he was like a sergeant major, Joe Harvey. But I mean, Cluffy was just something else. And uh, as Frank says, um, the thing with Cluffy is you could never, like I've just said, you know, I, I knew him for years and yet didn't know him at all. And players that have played with him will say exactly the same. Fear factor come into it in the unpredictability. You never were in a comfort zone. You never knew what he was going to do next. And that drove them on. Plus the fact that he got a hold of, can you remember, was it Ian Bowyer? They played at Forest and was absolutely outstanding. Went and signed for Sunderland. was an absolute disaster. Went back to Forest and was a great player again. You got players that were average players, and I'm including Frank in this in terms of not England superstars, would go there and just be absolutely magnificent and do a job and win everything um, that they hadn't done before or afterwards. Um, and Clarkey is so grateful. I mean, he's, won, he's a European, a European winner. Twice over, 40-year anniversary and 30-year anniversary coming up this this season we've just started with Newcastle and with Nottingham Forest. Now, how are you on earth are you supposed to win European trophies with Newcastle United and Nottingham Forest? Clarkey did. Wonderful, wonderful time and really rescued his career. Um, and Cluffy had a habit of doing that and had a habit of um, turning average players into great players uh, and it was his organisation and man management again like Joe Harvey he wasn't a tactician he didn't do tactics he didn't know tactics he, he didn't buy players Taylor bought most of his players um, but he, 
and, and Harvey was exactly the same. Harvey bought the place, but he didn't coach the place. Uh, that was done by Dave Smith and Keith Bergenshaw, who went on to Spurs. Um, but they had this ability to man-manage. Bill Shankly, ability to man-manage. Can get a coach in. You, you see some great coaches that can't become great managers, but great managers don't need to be great coaches that can go and get one. Cluffy did that. We can only imagine what would have happened had uh, Clough joined. Um, anyone else you you want to mention? I know you had a few well, couple of names. Yeah, just in passing, just because, uh, you know, if you were born on Tyneside and were a Newcastle United fan as a kid and you have any sort of success, you're going to be linked with coming back to Newcastle United. And you're going to be linked, but at some stage there's actually going to be an approach to do that. And a couple of guys who were good friends of mine that I got to know well because they were Geordies and because they were successful was Laurie McManamy and Steve Bruce. And got to know them ever so well. Um, Laurie McManamy, who became hugely famous at Southampton, um, where he was manager and a legend for donkeys, donkeys years, and was Kevin Keegan's manager when Keegan came to Newcastle as a player. Uh, he was actually at my 21st birthday party in the Egyptian pub um, down where the old Time TV television studios used to be when I was 21 because I was covering Gateshead, who had just dropped out the Football League at that stage, and he was a, um, a coach at Gateshead, a trainer at Gateshead. Never been a footballer of any consequence. Keeps telling you he was, but he wasn't. He was Gates and Reserve centre half, I think. Uh, but a super, super coach. Um, had been at my 21st. I'd known him ever since. He went down to Southampton and became a big, big star. And in 1976, you may remember, there was a second division club but they won the FA Cup by beating the mighty Manchester United at Wembley, 1-0. Uh, that was the stage when Newcastle United attempted to bring him up here as a Geordie to manage Newcastle. It was, Ward it was Lord Westwood who was the um, chairman of the club. He needed somebody to succeed Gordon Lee, who had just done a runner off to Everton. Um, Instead, we got Richard Dennis, the player power, who was Lee's number two, and that was an unmitigated disaster. But before that happened, um, Westwood made an approach to Laurie McMenemy um, and offered him the job at Newcastle. Now, you got by in mind, he was born in Gateshead, his family was, his, was still living in Gateshead, he'd been a Newcastle fan from being a kid, so Westwood thought, I've got a great chance of getting this guy. Unfortunately, Bill Westwood's um, timing was way off. The approach was made between the semi-final and the final of the FA Cup with Southampton. Southampton at the time had just won the semi-final but hadn't played in the final against Manchester United. I suppose Bill was saying all good things are going to come to an end. They're not going to beat Manchester United. Come and join us. Uh, they did beat Manchester United. But as Lowy said to me, he said, Gibbo, you know, it might be my own town club, it might be the club I love, but I'm just about to march out at the front. I mean, bear in mind the FA Cup in those days, 76, were massive, much more than nowadays. He walks out at the front of Southampton, and of course, 
the won the cup and he's a legend down on that south coast ever since. Uh, and so he reluctantly turned them down. The sort of friendship that I had with Laurie, um, who again used to come up here from Southampton and do talkings, uh, we were just talking about Cluffy and Bobby Robson, uh, was when Newcastle were about to sign Kevin Keegan. Uh, they were completely in the doldrums, it was around this period where they were with Arthur Cox, completely in the doldrums. It was huge, huge news because Kevin Keegan had won the European Cup with Liverpool, had gone over to Hamburg and been the European Player of the Year twice, Southampton was second top of the league. He had he always got restless feet in KK, he, he could never settle in one place longer than three or four, five years top whack and he had to move on. Um, was going to leave, it was, it had leaked that Newcastle might be interested. There was no confirmation from the club, everything was buttoned down, there was no confirmation from Southampton, there was just rumours flying about. The Chronicle are obviously gaga about this, we've got it, what's happening, is it happening, could it happen? The England skipper come to us when we're in the second division, in the doldrums, disaster. Um, so, you know, Laurie Gibbo, you must be able to find out. Only trouble is that Southampton are in Holland on pre-season tour and they're playing Utrecht. So it's not just a matter of getting a hold of them here. And there's, mobiles weren't a thing at that time, 76 weren't a big thing. Um, uh, so how do I get them? I found out the, the hotel by going up the Southampton paper that the football club was staying in. I knew John Mortimer, who was Lowy's number two. I phoned the hotel, looking for Lowy. You've got to bear in mind the world and his wife wanted to speak to Lowy with the Kevin Keegan thing on. I got John, I got put through to John Mortimer's one. He said, Gibbo, I can't tell you a thing. I really can't. It's more than my job's worth. Uh, if anything's mentioned, I can't confirm or deny anything. That alerts you even higher because if there's nothing in it, you think he's going to say, ah, forget it, but he's so yellow. But I can't do anything about it. Now, okay, I understand, big man, phone down, I'm absolutely decimated. No further forward, page one's empty, and there's about 20 minutes to go to edition time. My phone rings, I'm irritated on the desk because I'm thinking, what can I write? Pick it up. Gibbo, yeah, yeah, it's Lowry, now Lowry, you, you know, can Lovey McMenemy, and I kept hearing beep, 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 beep. He's in a coin box, and his money's keep going now. He's in a coin box at Amsterdam Airport to fly back to Southampton. They played Utrecht, and the condition was the club got 15 grand if Kevin Keegan was in the side and gotten out if Kevin Keegan didn't play. So that's why Kevin Keegan, even though he might be transferred, was out there because they wanted to pick up their door. He heard from John Mortimer, I'd been on the phone, he's beep, beep, beeping, putting coins, feeding coins into a box. He says, Gibbo Keegan is already on a British Caledonian flight, he says, arrives 10 to 12 in Newcastle to the airport. There's a press conference at tea time at the Gosford Park Hotel. He's on his way now, get a snap out of the airport. You can run the story, boom, boom, boom. Gotta go, gotta go, they're calling me. Phone down. One of the biggest exclusives you could absolutely get, as big as when Shearer signed, uh, as big as when Supermax signed. Kevin Keegan's coming to Newcastle United, the current England skipper, and when the doldrums are second division. That's called friendship. When a Geordie 
actually has to put himself out enormously in a coin box in Amsterdam airport to give you the every kick detail. And we had the pictures of Keegan in a t-shirt coming down the steps of the British Caledonian shivering like heck into here and we were, we'd run the story all day before the press conference. They are the people you love for that sort of thing. Now, Brucey, I'd got to know from Walls End Boys Club in the same sort of way. Jordy, and of course, he was a superstar at Manchester United long before he became a manager. Um, and he had gone with Beardsley, and neither Beardsley or him could find a football club. They were touted round Cambridge, Gillingham, all these places, and bearing in mind what they both become. Uh, inevitably, with the success he had as a manager, he was approached by Freddie Shepherd at this time to replace Bobby Robson. When Bobby Robson was leaving Newcastle, um, Freddie Shep tried to get Steve Bruce. This is before Steve Bruce went to Sunderland, obviously. Uh, Newcastle agreed to pay £3 million compensation uh, for this guy. The trouble was, it was... Um, in June of that year, which is 2004, he just signed a new five-year contract at Birmingham City. It was two months later when Newcastle made their approach through Freddie Shep and were going to pay the compensation. The three mil would have had to be increased, actually, but that was Newcastle's offer. The trouble was that Steve got cold feet because early in his managerial career, he'd kept moving about. He'd knock clubs on the head to go to a supposedly bigger club and to go to a bigger club. And he felt he was getting a reputation of walking out on football clubs and it, in the long term that was going to do him no favours whatsoever. And having just signed a five-year contract three months beforehand, he got cold feet that he couldn't do it, that it would be one move too far and he had to spend time he stayed at Birmingham. He always regretted that, and he regretted it even more when he went to Sunderland in an effort to get uh, a big job. And I told him the day he went to Sunderland, I said, Steve, I don't know what you've done, but you've committed suicide. Uh, he said, why? I said, well, I couldn't tell you why. Because Newcastle United fans, for what it's worth, will never forgive you. The Newcastle United fan that uh, turned down Newcastle United and has now gone to Sunderland, and I said, the Sunderland fans, you're going to have to win the FA Cup, the championship, and get into Europe, because if you don't, you'll just be a, a, a Geordie so-and-so. Uh, if you win, you'll be okay, and if you lose, you'll be a Geordie so-and-so. And of course, that's what happened to him. Um, and he says, the, the fans, the Sunderland fans, I think he had a couple of top six or top seven finishes at Sunderland, which was quite amazing. But he lost two derbies. Uh, but he always told me that the, the one they did from with the Sunderland fans was not the five goal derby up here when he lost at St James's. When I was sitting about 40 yards behind him, and I've never seen such a dejected figure on the touchline as Steve was that day. But if you remember the one down there when we won by a goal, Ryan Taylor over the wall into the top corner, he reckons that is the one on home soil down there that turned the Sunderland fans completely the other way around and he said that being a Geordie did cost him his job at Sunderland and what 
I'd said privately to him when he went, turned out to be the way it was. And bless him, because he is, and I'll reiterate, and I know Newcastle fans don't like him because he went to Sunderland and he didn't come here, and Sunderland fans don't like him because he's Geordie, but he's one of the nicest blokes I've met, one of the best people to be in the company, is a, a good, warm guy, and a guy who was a fabulous, and oh, he never got an England cap, I don't know, at when he was Manchester United. In one season, he scored 19 goals from centre-half, you know. What would we give for a centre-forward now who had scored 19 goals? He scored 19 goals from centre-half, going up for set-pieces and corners with with his headers, etc., etc. And a lovely, lovely man with a good football brain. Um, not liked up here, but liked by Gibbo. Fantastic. And then just briefly, in a sentence, out of the players and managers that we have mentioned, um, the one for you that hates the most, shall we say? Brilliant. Brilliant, brilliant question. Uh, I think Cluffy's the one that I would like to have got. Uh, the player I would like to have got is the wrong one because he approached me, but his soonest. Um, uh, we and Baggio were absolutely fabulous, but and, and the deals were genuine, but it would have still been Fantasy Island. I'm quite happy to have got Ferguson, uh, to, to have got Ferdinand and Aspire that came along. Uh, Cluffy might just have been sensational and it wouldn't have stopped that's got nothing to do with Kevin Keegan and Bobby Robson coming along the more the merrier but soon as I personally was involved as the go-between in the whole deal um, a wonderful wonderful player begging to come here and we couldn't sign him for goodness sake when you think of what he would win I would have liked soon as the player I would have liked Cluff the manager even though I did just say, finally, you're interested in the, the, the kind of slip of the tongue there, you mentioned Ferguson, I just want to briefly ask you, because a lot of people will be asking, did Newcastle try and go after Ferguson when Keegan left? Yes, they did. Because you've got, you've got to bear in mind that we were dealing with the Fantasy Island guys, who was uh, Douglas Hall, Freddie Fletcher, John Hall Green, and um, Freddie Shep. And... They loved doing the impossible. That's why they went for Weir. That's why they went for Badger. That's why they went for Spear. That's why they paid for Shearer. And that's why they, they wanted Ferguson. When they were, that's why they made Twigamala the first rugby union £1 million star the world has ever known when they signed them for the Falcons because they said, at that meeting, they said, we want to sign a million pound player, the first one ever in rugby. Who, and they said to Rob Andrew, who's the, the bloke is good enough for that? He said, Inga Twigamola. I said, right, we'll send Twigamola. They went to Ferguson and tried to do a deal for Ferguson. He could have easily been put into these managers if the deals wasn't done. And, you know, when you go to even great managers like that, they're so grateful, they're so pleased, they're so shocked. This, and this club has potential because of its, it has potential and always has had. Ask Rafa Benitez. Why is he still here? After being messed about the way he's been messed about. Because he'll never find a club with the potential and with fans that love him in so many thousands as he's got here. Cluffy could see that. Ferguson could see that. All right, with Cluffy it was different with Ferguson. But yes, an approach was made to Ferguson. Yes, it was serious. Yes, he knew it was serious. Yes, he was tempted. But I don't think it ever got to the stage where it was 
literally an inch off being over the line. Fantastic. Well, there you go. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Gitwood's Corner. Like I said, brought you in association with eToro. If you head over to chroniclelive.co.uk, UK rather, you can keep the date with all the latest of Cast United news and you can find all the podcasts that we've done over the past year or so. And uh, we'll be back very shortly for the next episode of Gitwood's Corner.